Friends, it's good to be with you on this Lord's Day. And if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, where we're going to find an important passage on the kingdom of God and the second coming of Christ. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. And if you would, please follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And Jesus said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed." On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now as we consider God's word. Father, we ask for your help. We need the Holy Spirit's illumination. We need the Holy Spirit's work among us to understand, believe, obey, and apply Your Word. And so we ask for that now. Father, I pray that You would keep me from error. I pray that You would give Your church discernment. Lord, I pray that everything we do now as we consider Your Word would be an encouragement to faith. Faith in Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen. For centuries, the church has encountered various teachers who have claimed to know when the Lord Jesus would return. Thomas Munster, for example, a 16th century German preacher, said that Jesus would return and that his reign would begin in 1525. Emanuel Swedenborg claimed that the last judgment occurred in uh, 1757 and that he alone had witnessed it. William Miller, founder of the Millerites, boldly claimed that 1844 was the year of the second coming. 
Not to be outdone, Charles Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, said that 1874 was the year the kingdom would come in all of its fullness. And lest we think we have moved past such things as recently as the 1980s and 90s, Edgar Wisenant was convinced that 1988 was the year Jesus would come back. 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. It was a best-selling book. Then it was 1989. Then it was 1993. Then it was 1994. And you get the picture. These are sadly just a few examples of something that has plagued the church for centuries, for millennia. False claims, spurious predictions regarding the second coming of Christ. These claims are problematic for a number of reasons, but the most serious is, uh, most serious is how they undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. As Christians, we believe that God has given us all we need for life and godliness in His Word, but every false prediction of the second coming undermines that confidence. Every false prediction is built on an implied critique of both the Bible and the Lord Jesus. If only God had given us more detailed information, then we would be better prepared for the end. If only Jesus had told us ahead of time, then we wouldn't have to have such fearful uncertainty. So you can see the problem. These false predictions are, are not merely foolish and silly. They are that. They're not merely foolish and silly. They're also an assault on Scripture. And an assault upon Jesus Himself. And therein lies the value of our passage this morning in Luke 17. Here in Luke 17, we are reminded that God's Word is sufficient, even for understanding the end of all things. Here in Luke 17, we see how Jesus does prepare His church. How Christ has clearly given us all that we need for perseverance, even perseverance into the very end of the age. As you heard in our reading of the passage, this text deals with the consummation of God's kingdom, which will, which will occur with the return of the King, the Lord Jesus. In fact, you may have heard in the reading that the Pharisees demonstrate uh, how speculation about the end goes back to the beginning. They too ask Jesus to pinpoint when is the kingdom going to come. They want Him to set a date. But Jesus, in response, does not resort to, set, uh, to speculation. He doesn't set any dates. Instead, Jesus gives His disciples clear teaching that prepares them to endure to the end whenever that end may be. That's really the key point of this passage, friends. There are any number of fascinating things that we could talk about in Luke 17. But the primary point of this text is not speculative. It's pastoral. It's pastoral. As the king over God's kingdom, Jesus is preparing His disciples in these verses. He's preparing them to endure to the end so that they will not fall prey to the Thomas Munsters and Emmanuel Swedenbergs of this world. So that they will not fall prey to fear and false speculation. It's a pastoral text, not a speculative text. And that gives us our direction for this morning. Again, there's a lot we could say about 
these verses, but I want us to focus on four truths about the kingdom of God and the return of the king. Four truths about God's kingdom and God's king. I hope you remember that in the Bible, the return of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom go hand in hand. So to, to talk about the establishment of God's kingdom is to talk about the return of the king, the Lord Jesus. So to that end, I want us to think about these four truths regarding the kingdom of God and the Lord's King Jesus. And I hope that these truths will help us be prepared to persevere to the end, whenever that may be. Number one then, from verses 20 and 21, first kingdom truth. We see that the kingdom is present in Jesus. The kingdom is present in Jesus. The Pharisees return to the picture, and again they come with a question. Verse 20, they ask Jesus when the kingdom of God will come. Now, Jesus has been preaching the kingdom since chapter 4, but the Pharisees don't see it. They don't hear it. They expect the kingdom to come in an apocalyptic way that brings history to an end, perhaps with great military or political upheaval. But that expectation does not match Jesus' ministry, does it? Just consider the scene immediately prior to this one. Who received Jesus' attention? Not the religious elite, but a group of lepers, outcasts. Or think about Jesus' followers. They're not lawyers and scribes and Pharisees. They're fishermen primarily, with a tax collector and a zealot thrown in. Or consider Jesus' platform, to use a modern day word. Think about Jesus' platform. He doesn't have one. He doesn't preach in a well-furnished synagogue. He's an itinerant preacher. He doesn't even have a home. Everything about Jesus' ministry, in other words, fails to meet the Pharisees' expectations. They think the kingdom's going to come in apocalyptic power, which is why they don't see Jesus. So when they ask the question in verse 20, they're not being curious. They're not well-intentioned. They ask the question with a note of accusation. When is the kingdom going to come, Jesus? Because it sure hasn't come with you. That's what they're saying. Jesus responds with a twofold answer. He begins by pointing out that the Pharisees are asking the wrong question. Notice verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. Now, Jesus is not saying that the kingdom comes in secret. Rather, his point is that the kingdom does not come in the ways the Pharisees expect. It's not coming with apocalyptic signs. It's not coming with an invading army. It's not coming with an overthrow of Rome. That's not how the kingdom comes. The signs of the kingdom will not grab the world's headlines. The Pharisees are asking the wrong question. Then comes the correction. If the kingdom is not coming in those ways, then how is it coming? Jesus tells them. Notice verse 21. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, Jesus says, don't look for signs in the heavens. Look for what is happening right in front of you. Look at who is standing right in front of you. And who is standing right in front of the Pharisees? Jesus. 
You see, the Pharisees' preoccupation with signs in the heavens causes them to miss the one standing here on earth. Looking for the kingdom, they miss the king. They miss Jesus. This is what the Pharisees fail to understand. If you want to see God's kingdom, then look for God's king. Because His kingdom is found wherever His king reigns. And everything about Jesus' ministry reveals Him to be the king. Nothing about His ministry fits the Pharisees' expectation, but everything about Him reveals Him to be God's king. He was born in David's line, in David's city. He teaches God's Word with unrivaled authority, not like one of the Pharisees or scribes. He has power over disease and sickness and even death. And most staggering of all, Jesus does what only God can do. He commands the creation. He reveals the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts. He even forgives sins. So it's true that Jesus' ministry has not come with military power. It has not come with apocalyptic power. He's not a great political leader. No, He's more than that, is what Jesus is wanting us to see. He's more than those things. Everything that Jesus does reveals Him to be God's King. So if the Pharisees want to see the kingdom of God, they don't have to look up in the sky. They need to look right in front of them. If you want to see God's kingdom, then you must respond to Jesus. That's the correction. Friends, what we should take away from this is that the best way to prepare for the end times, the best way to prepare for the end times is to focus on Jesus Christ. That's the best way. We don't need elaborate systems of predictions. We need to remain keyed in on the Gospel. We don't need to worry ourselves with signs. We need to devote ourselves to the Gospel. That's where God's kingdom is found. Not in mighty displays of heavenly power, but in the humble good news that the Son of God laid down His life for His church. Friends, if you prioritize that message, then you can rest assured that you will see God's kingdom. If you focus on Jesus Christ then you can rest in the fact that His Gospel will keep you to the very last day. If you want to get ready for the end, focus on Jesus and His Gospel. The kingdom is present in Jesus, so we ought to devote ourselves not to speculation and prediction, but to knowing and serving the King. That's the first kingdom truth. At the same time, Jesus also wants His disciples to understand that there is a future element to His kingdom. You'll notice in verse 22 that He shifts His focus to His disciples. And His aim is to better equip them for what will come. This is an important theological point, friends. It might help you even read your Bible better. The kingdom of God is present in Jesus, as we just saw. But it is also true that the kingdom of God is not yet present in its fullness. Think about the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11 where Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Your kingdom come. So there is some sense in which the kingdom of God is not yet fully consummated. It's not yet here in all of its depth and glory and fullness. In fact, this is the best way to think about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is both already present and not yet fully consummated. Already, but not yet. That's the kingdom of God. 
It has been inaugurated with Jesus' first coming, and it will be consummated with Jesus' second coming. Inauguration, consummation. Already, but not yet. That distinction marks the rest of the passage from verse 22 on. You can think of the rest of the passage as Jesus teaching us how to live in between the already and the not yet. That's where we are. We're in between the first and second coming. How do we live then? He's going to tell us. Beginning in verse 22 to verse 24. This is the second kingdom truth. The kingdom will come with unmistakable power. So the kingdom is present in Jesus. Truth number two. The kingdom will come with unmistakable power. Jesus predicts that the day is coming when He will depart the earth and His disciples will long for His return. Notice verse 22. And Jesus said to His disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Now the main interpretive question here has to do with that phrase, the days of the Son of Man. It's unique in all of the Gospels. The days of the Son of Man. To what is Jesus referring? Some scholars hold that Jesus is referring to His present ministry so that His disciples will one day long to go back to Jesus' earthly ministry days. That they will long to go back. That view, however, fails to make sense of the context, which is decidedly future all through these verses. Verses 25 and 30 are clearly referring to the future, to what is to come. So, it's best to take that phrase, the days of the Son of Man, as referring to the return of Christ. The days of the Son of Man doesn't look back, it looks forward. The time is coming when Christ will depart and the disciples will long for His return. But as they wait, the disciples must remain vigilant. Notice verse 23. And they will say to you, Look, there! Or look, here! Do not go out or follow them. So Jesus warns His disciples against the very thing that we mentioned at the outset of the sermon. False claims regarding the second coming. There will be many, Jesus says, who claim that the kingdom of God has come in secret. That the Lord has returned and that only they have the insight to identify the signs. Jesus is very clear. This will happen. And His disciples must remain vigilant. Don't be taken in by such schemes. And so just for the sake of clarity here, and out of responsibility as a pastor, I just want to say to you, if anyone comes to you and says that they have the key insight as to when Jesus has returned or will return, and therefore you ought to join their group, don't listen to that person. This would include Jehovah's Witnesses. This would include Mormons. Don't listen to those claims. And you're thinking, why is he saying this? Well, friends, there are people in those places every Sunday. So as a warning, based on God's Word, don't listen to people who claim to have special insight into the return of Christ. They're lying to you. Jesus tells you the truth. Don't go out and follow them. We need to remain vigilant. Jesus then tells us why these claims are false. It's because His return will be unmistakably powerful. Notice the imagery of verse 24. 
For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. I don't know if you've ever been near a strike of lightning. It's a sudden display of power. It comes without warning. But do you know what else is true of a lightning strike? It's unmistakable. No one who has been near a bolt of lightning ever has to pause and say, was that, was that lightning? Did that, was that lightning that just struck the ground? I'm not sure. Was, is that what that was? Nobody ever has to say that. Why? Because it's unmistakably powerful. And that's how it will be when the Lord Jesus returns. There will be no secret return where some people are aware and some are not. There will be no need for special guides to lead you into the truth with their secret signs. It will be like lightning crashing into the ground. Nobody has to tell you that lightning struck. In the same way, no one will tell you, have to tell you that Jesus has returned. His return will be unmistakably powerful. And no one will miss it. This is why the church for 2,000 years has confessed that Jesus will return visibly and bodily and gloriously. Visibly, bodily, and gloriously. I am often disheartened that Christians get really caught up on the details and the timing of the last days and they miss the glory. Jesus will come visibly so that every eye will see Him. Jesus will come bodily so that He reigns as the incarnate Son of God. And Jesus will come gloriously so that there is no doubt about what is happening. And this should be a wonderful source of encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. We don't have to be afraid. I know that some Christians experience a great level of fear when they think about the second coming. I have known some Christians who worry that the return of Christ is going to happen and that they're going to miss it. I remember standing in the floor of my dad's factory talking to a brother in the Lord and he was weeping because he was terrified that he was going to miss the return of Jesus. He was afraid. And Jesus would say to those Christians, you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear. I've already told you what will occur and you can trust me. That's a great sense of encouragement, friends. It eliminates our fear. And it also reminds us that our future is certain. Our future is certain. That's another thing about a lightning strike. <laughs> you can't stop it. Once enough energy is stored up and the conditions are right, there's nothing you can do to stop the lightning from striking. And so it will be with the return of Christ. The evil one and the forces of this age will conspire against Christ and make war on His church, and yet they can't stop Him. As sure as the lightning flashes from heaven to earth, so also will the Lord Jesus return to gather His church visibly, bodily, and gloriously. Don't be afraid, Jesus is saying. We don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. We can stand firm. The Lord is coming again. All will see Him because He will come with unmistakable power. That leads us into kingdom truth number three, which completes the second truth from verse 25. The kingdom will not come apart from the cross. The kingdom will come with unmistakable power, but the kingdom will not come apart from the cross. One of the great mysteries of the gospel, friends, in order for God's kingdom to be established, the king must die. 
Notice verse 25. But first, He, that is the Son of Man, first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just like we saw last week, the cross is always present in Jesus' mind. And so I just I want you to note how Jesus puts the cross at the center of redemptive history. The Pharisees want a sign. Lots of people today want signs. But there's no greater sign than the Son of God slain for sinners and resurrected to new life. There's no greater sign than this. The kingdom of God will come. The knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But it will only come through the cross. The glory of God will strike like lightning. But nowhere will that glory be seen as clearly as on the cross when Jesus hangs there bearing the wrath of God and shedding His blood for the salvation of His people. This is the central point of all redemptive history, the sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death of Jesus Christ. Friends, when someone asks you for a sign that should convince them to believe, tell them the Gospel. Preach the Gospel to them. That's the only sign that God has given in His new covenant that His kingdom will be established. The kingdom will come, but not apart from the cross. And on the one hand, this is sobering, isn't it? I mean, Jesus says it in verse 25, that He's going to be rejected. That means to be scorned, to be shamed, to be mocked. Jesus is going to be rejected by His people, by the nation of Israel. The chief priests and the religious leaders will falsely accuse Him, and a crowd of His own countrymen will prefer a murderer and a rebel to the Messiah. It is sobering to realize that this is the depth of humanity's depraved heart. That God's people, His old covenant people, would reject the Messiah, the one for whom they were waiting. It's sobering. And yet, on the other hand, it's also encouraging, too. You think, that's weird. How is it encouraging? Look at the language Jesus uses in verse 25. He says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Do you see that? He must suffer many things. Friends, that's the language of divine necessity. Behind the rejection Jesus receives in Jerusalem stands the sovereign God of history. So to just put it very plainly, friends, the cross is God's plan. That's what Jesus is saying. The cross is God's plan. The suffering of Christ is the plan of God. The shame, the mockery, the agony, everything that Jesus experienced, He experiences because it was determined by His Father that He would experience it. There's no plan B in the kingdom of God. There's just plan A, and it runs through the cross. And that means that Jesus does not go to Jerusalem as some helpless victim. He is not driven by fatalism. He's not going there resigned to His fate. No, friends, Jesus goes to Jerusalem in triumph. Jesus goes to Jerusalem with the confidence of victory. He knows what is coming. The kingdom of God cannot be consummated apart from the cross. There is a sense in which the cross is a coronation of God's King. And He's crowned with suffering. And so Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and He goes knowing that His Father's 
will is being done. The cross does not derail God's plan. It is God's plan. And so, brothers and sisters, a very simple encouragement for us. If the cross could not derail God's kingdom, then nothing in this world can derail God's purposes for His church. Do you see it? Far too much of our thinking about the end times is rooted in fear and driven by uncertainty. Yes, the days are evil and they will get worse, but the church has nothing to fear. Regardless of what comes our way, we have this blessed assurance that Christ has achieved victory through His suffering at the cross. And therefore, God's purposes will not come to... Uh, they will not fail. They will come to pass. God's kingdom will come in its fullness. If the cross could not derail the plan of God, then nothing will keep God from fulfilling His plan for His church. But what about when my life is full of suffering? Someone will ask. What about when my life is full of suffering? If the victory has been won, if the cross is the fulfillment, then why do we still suffer in the here and now? Why do I lose my job? Why does my spouse get cancer? Why do bad things still happen? How do you explain that, Pastor? That's a good question. That's the right question, in fact. And I would say in response to that question, look to the cross. Look to the cross. If the cross is the center of redemptive history, then the cross must also be the center of our discipleship. The way we approach life as Christians has got to be shaped by the cross. Let me explain what I mean. The cross is primarily the great redemptive act of God where He saves His people through the sacrifice of His Son. But at the same time, listen to me, at the same time, the cross is also the great interpretive act of God where He teaches His people how to understand life in this fallen world. The cross teaches us that in God's kingdom, suffering precedes glory. Christ will come in power, but only after He endures the cross. In God's kingdom, suffering precedes glory. And friends, the same is true for us. These light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Suffering precedes glory. How do we know that? Because of the cross. It is the great interpretive act of God. When the trials of life come, when it appears that Satan's kingdom is overruling God's kingdom, when the next wave of suffering hits, when the darkness is so deep you are convinced it will never, ever, ever lift, at those moments, you look to the cross where our salvation was accomplished and where Christ shows us the way to glory. It's paved with suffering and affliction and hardship. So, take heart. That's what the Apostle Paul says. These light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So we do not lose heart. Take heart. 
Christ endured the cross and therefore the kingdom will come. Let us then take up the cross and follow the Lord on that same road to glory. That's kingdom truth number three. Lastly, Jesus ends his teaching with a preview of his kingdom's authority. From verses 26 to 37, truth number four, the kingdom will come with sure and sudden judgment. The kingdom will come with sure and sudden judgment. There's a lot in these verses, but the main idea is the judgment of God exercised by Christ when He comes again. We know that judgment is the theme because of the Old Testament examples that Jesus uses. Look at the text. Jesus speaks of the days of Noah, verses 26 and 27, and the days of Lot, verses 28 and 29. In both instances, what happened? The judgment of God came suddenly to those who were unprepared. And the same will be true with Jesus' return. Look again at verse 30. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On the final day, whenever that is, people will be living their lives with little regard for God, going about their business, just as in the days of Noah and Lot. And then without warning, the trumpet will blast, Christ will descend, and the judgment of God will come suddenly to the earth. This is the final consummation of the kingdom of God, friends. It begins with divine judgment at the hands of Christ. And the suddenness of this judgment means that the time to get ready is now. Notice the caution Jesus gives, verse 31. On that day, the day of judgment, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. You won't have time to worry about your stuff, Jesus says. Judgment will be sudden, so you should get ready now. You should prepare now for the return of Christ. And this preparation needs to be wholehearted. Look at another Old Testament example, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. What happened to Lot's wife? Her attachment to the world caused her to look back. And in looking back, she fell under the judgment of God. And friends, by the way, the fact that Jesus uses this as an example should be a reminder to you that it's, it really happened. It's historical. Right? It's not a myth. Myths don't have any power to compel your obedience. So Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. She looked back and she fell. In the same way, don't allow the things of this world to entangle your heart. The last day is coming, so prepare with wholehearted devotion and prepare now. In fact, Jesus makes this principle very clear in verse 33. Notice his call. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Friends, that's a call to submit to Christ in repentance and faith. This is the only way to escape the judgment of God. There are only two options before you. You can either hold on to your life now 
insisting on your own authority and believing that this world will satisfy you and in the end you will be destroyed. Or you can lose your life now by bowing the knee to Jesus, confessing Him as Lord, and you will receive life in Him and at the end. Those are the stakes facing every person. Hold on to your life now, destruction. Lose your life now in repentance and faith, live. The time to prepare is now, for the judgment is coming. And make no mistake, the judgment will be final. Notice the picture of lasting separation that Jesus describes, verses 34 and 35. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. The return of Christ is the great dividing line of humanity. It will separate families from one another. It will separate people in life and in the marketplace and in business from one another. And that separation is eternal. Please don't miss the note of finality in 34 and 35. The one person is taken up with Christ to live. The other person is left on the earth. What happened to the people who were left on the earth in Noah's day? They were destroyed. So it will be in this day. One is taken up to live and the other is left to judgment. And that judgment is final. There's no negotiating with God. That's striking, isn't it? It was striking for Jesus' disciples as well. Notice their question that closes the passage. Verse 37. The disciples said to Him, Where, Lord, He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's a hard verse to interpret. Why do the disciples ask where? Probably because they want to know the location where this cataclysmic event is going to occur. But Jesus' answer is difficult. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What's the point of that? Likely, it means that God's judgment is going to come anywhere where there is spiritual death. Vultures gather to the corpse and divine judgment comes to those who are dead in their sins. Where? Jesus says anywhere where the spiritually dead are found. That's everywhere. That's the best sense of the verse. But through all of these details, friends, I want you to see the emphasis on divine judgment. The kingdom of God will come in power and when it does, Christ will come to judge His enemies. That's the great irony of this passage. The Pharisees began by asking Jesus, when are you going to wield the sword and overthrow all of your enemies? And Jesus is telling His disciples, not yet. Not yet. But one day I will come and do just that. He will unleash God's wrath against those who do not know God and those who do not obey the Gospel of Christ. That day is surely coming. And it is coming suddenly. So only a fool thinks that he can wait to get ready. Only a fool thinks, I'll hold off till things get closer to the end, and then I'll prepare to face God. Only a fool thinks that way. That's precisely what Jesus is warning us against in this final section. Judgment is sudden. Listen to me, friends. You will not be able to read the signs well enough to give yourself enough advanced warning to get ready for the return of Christ. No one will be able to say, ah, there it is, I'll get ready now. It doesn't work that way. The time to prepare is now. 
and the way you prepare for the end is not by looking for signs or speculating about the end of history. The way you, re- you prepare for the end is by repenting of your sins, trusting in Christ to save you, and submitting to Him as your Lord. If you are not a Christian today, this is Jesus' message to you straight from His Word. I don't have any secret revelations to give you. I just have the Bible. And Jesus says it plainly. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Trust in Christ, friend. Trust in Christ. The judgment is coming soon. I wish that I could communicate to you how earnestly God wants you to hear His Word. The judgment is coming soon. Turn to Christ. That is the only way to prepare for the end and receive the salvation of God. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Friends, we don't need speculation and prediction about the end of all things. We don't need those things because we have Christ and Christ is a good shepherd. And He's not left us to guess about what is to come He's not consigned us to fear and worry. He's told us ahead of time how we ought to live between the already and the not yet. The kingdom is present now in Jesus, so we focus our lives on the gospel. The kingdom will come with unmistakable power, so we don't have to fear what will happen to us. The kingdom will not come apart from the cross, so we take up the cross in obedience to the Lord and follow Him on the road to glory And the kingdom will come with sure and sudden judgment. So we urge the world, be reconciled to God in Christ. If you want to see the kingdom, look for the king. If you want to live for the kingdom, live for the king. Praise God that our king reigns on high. And so we close today by praying as the church has prayed now for some 2,000 years. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, please save the lost. Please work with power through Your Gospel, through the preaching of Your Word, and grant new life to those who are dead in their sins. We know, God, because You have told us that the great and final day is coming, and is coming suddenly. And so we pray, Lord, that You would please save those who are now bound for judgment. Father, thank You that You have spared us from the destruction that is to come, and You've spared us, Father, only by grace. None of us has anything to point to in our lives as to why we would be spared from that great lightning strike of Christ's return. So we are stunned by grace, God, and we pray that our hearts would now be moved to greater obedience and devotion to You so that Your grace, Father, would be known and cherished and savored and celebrated by all for whom Christ has died. We pray in His name. Amen.